all we got. One goddamn hit. You can't say goddamn on here. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. All right, welcome to season two of Golf Drinking and Life. My name is Colin McKern. I'm a PGA professional and a Callaway staff member here in Mobile, Alabama. Here with my co-host, my brother, Corey McKern. He's a professional opera singer and a professor at the University of West Florida in Pensacola, Florida. Big core. Hey, man. How's it going? Good. What's going on? Good to be back. Yeah. Been a little hiatus. Took a Christmas break that lasted into March. Yeah. Well, we were planning to last at least into February anyway. So uh, we're, we're, we're picking a good time to uh, come back right now. Golf's uh, just about to uh, explode with the events that are about to happen. And you know who is not currently a Callaway staff member right now? Uh, Phil Mickelson. Phil Mickelson currently on pause with Callaway. A lot of news going on there. Um, we'll get to all of that. Corey, you've been uh, doing a little world traveling in the world of opera here. Yeah, uh, I think before I left, our last podcast probably talked about it, but I've been in uh, New York working on a project. I left January 17th and rehearsed this show um, in Brooklyn, actually. I was staying in Little Italy, and then we opened the show in New York. And then did a little West Coast tour to uh, Davis, California, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and Los Angeles. So uh, a lot. We'll have to unpack that over a few episodes. But it was uh, an opera by Beethoven called Fidelio. Um, so an old German opera that was updated to a Black Lives Matter theme um, very effectively. Very well done and uh, pretty powerful. And uh, I played the racist white supremacist prison warden in this production and uh it's about a guy that gets wrongly sort of imprisoned and uh put in solitary confinement and his wife disguised herself as a guard and uh goes to rescue him and this evil prison warden doesn't want that to happen so that's kind of the premise uh so yeah a lot to unpack there um a lot of experiences had a great time course always difficult to be away from home for uh five weeks or so with between the jobs and the kids and the wife uh so yeah definitely... two small children that's tough that's a tough thing to do um yeah absolutely gives you a little insight to the guys that we're we are talking about every day you know every week on this show that travel for a living and and uh you know play golf and are away for three four five six weeks at a time um, you know, yeah, uh, of course. And no I, matter no matter how glamorous or how much money those guys have, there are a lot of guys out there that don't have that much money, as your Phil Mickelsons and your Tiger Woods. So, um, they're not always traveling with their children and don't have the ability to do that all the time. So it's uh, it's uh, I, I know I know that's got to be a tough thing. We, you know, when I was doing my traveling, it was before I had children, so. Um, that was that was a lot easier. It's definitely different, you know. At the beginning of my career, of course, you're not married, you're uh, excited by all the travel, and I still I always enjoyed traveling. Um, I like seeing new places, meeting new people, but definitely along the way, it gets more and more complex. There's a lot more moving parts. Uh, you know, I mean, if this is the worst of your problems, you're doing all right, but. I kept thinking like, oh, I hope my pool's okay. It needs to be backwashed. It's got to have green tablets. Is, are the leaves getting out of it? Uh, and if that's the worst of your stress, I guess you're doing all right. But there's uh, 
not so easy to just lock up your apartment and hit the road uh, as it used to be. For sure. Well, I want to uh, thank all our listeners. We are now in 22 countries and we are finally over 400 cities. We're in 406 cities. Please continue to share and uh, spread the word about our podcast. You can uh, follow me on Twitter at Colin McKern and you can email the show golfdrinkinglife at gmail.com. Um, I want to thank, thank the people that have shared their uh, personal stories and struggles. Um, please continue to email us those. It's always it's always interesting to hear how this show has affected people, whether it's helped or just reminded people or, or even just opened their eyes to maybe the fact that they have a problem. Um, my backstory is I'm almost two years sober now, Corey. We're still in the months. Um, I am 20 months <laughs> 20 months we, sober. So almost two years in this business. You don't like to uh, say two years when you're four months away from two years. Cause a lot can happen in four years, four months. Yeah. Um, so pretty stable right now though. And, and closing in on uh, two years. So um, feeling good uh, about all that. Um, gone back and listened to a few of the podcasts from last year. And um, um I think we did a good job about being honest with with a lot of the stuff. Um, it's not always easy to share personal stories like this in a public forum. Um, but, uh, you know, my ultimate goal of this is to hopefully help other people along the way. Uh, you know, the main the main one of the main goals being is I, I think there's a perception that that alcoholics are the homeless guy standing on the side of the road with a sign asking for money. And that is often the case, but they are also work amongst you or part of your family. Um, there's a lot of people out there struggling that you probably don't even know are struggling. And um, so it's, it's, it's a lot more common, I think, than the average person um, realizes. Yeah, for sure. Um, we'll have new episodes out now every Thursday morning. Um, we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, basically wherever you can find your podcasts. Um, this week, I want to do a shout out to Singapore. We've got some listeners in Singapore now, Corey, as we expand our worldwide footprint. Wow. Welcome, um, Singapore. If you have not listened to the show before, my, my backstory is, is um, I've had an addiction to alcohol for the better part of 30 years. I have now been sober after a near-death experience, um, July of 2020, and uh, we'll be sober here in in uh, July of uh, 2022 for two years now. So, um, it 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 took uh, coming close to death for me to finally quit, but uh, but fortunately, I'm doing much better now. I had blood work done a couple weeks ago, Corey, and everything continues to improve and is, is pretty much in the normal range now. So, nice. um, yeah. That's, yeah. You're very normal. Well, I've always well. thought of you as absolutely normal. <laughs> now that wasn't a personality <laughs> test. That was a blood oh, test. Oh yeah. Sorry. Sorry. So yeah. Also, I've never heard you described as a near death experience. Did you see a white light or uh, can you write a book about what heaven looks like now? I didn't uh, exactly. It was, um, it was, uh, you know, it, it, it's funny how that works because you don't realize that you're going through a near death experience when you're going through it, or at least I didn't. 
Um, <laughs> right. But as I still collect um, evidence and stories <laughs> from other people as to what happened, there were a lot of people that didn't think I was going to make it very much longer. So <laughs> you went through a near death experience for five years. Oh, well, yes, I went through near death experience for quite a while. I did. Yes. Um, And I'm also a hypochondriac. So I I go through near death experiences on a daily basis, usually four or five times. So, um, yeah, I was old. That's a a weird combination, a hypochondriac and then uh, in poor health at some point. Well, and it's funny because even though I was a hypochondriac, as I was actually almost dying, it really never occurred to me that I was almost dying. Um, obviously there were some signs that were concerning when, when you can see in the mirror, finally, when you're the one looking in the mirror several times a day, that, that you are skin and bones, then you really know something's wrong. That's when it did start to get scary right at the end. Yeah. Um, when, when I was starting to notice the severe weight loss. So, um, Feeling good now, though. Um, you know, I still joke about drinking and, and try to spin the, the funny stories. Um, and I, I still joke about it and talk about it quite a bit. And and I find that it it still makes some people uncomfortable. Like I, I was playing with a guy at the golf course the other day and I joked a couple of times about having a shot of fireball. Not like I was going to actually have a shot of fireball, but at some point he had asked me a question earlier in the round and I'd said something. And then when I made this comment on hole 11, he said, geez, stop talking about it. (laughs) And I thought, well, number one, that's really none of your business, whether I talk about it or not. But but that's just kind of how I deal with it, with with a bit of a sense of humor at this point. Um, I, I don't think it's something to hide from. Um, I, I'm around people who drink quite a bit still, obviously working in the golf business and playing a lot of golf. And so, you know, I don't think that, um, that just ignoring it, it, it is at least for me, um, a healthy way to deal with it. So I still do joke about it and, um, and, and, and that's just how I deal with it, whether that's right or wrong. It's not on the forefront of my mind to drink again. I haven't been tempted to drive to the liquor store. I'm not white knuckling it when I drive past liquor stores or go in stores that, uh, you know, any store you go into has wine, beer, whatever. So um, that's just kind of how I roll with it. And uh, so far, it's working for me. Yeah. Well, you know, humor is a tool. Uh, I mean, if you really talked about the, um, difficulties of life in a serious manner all the time. Um, you know, people often use humor and quite frankly, often very, uh, serious situations are the most hilarious, um, in some kind of weird Freudian way. Um, so it's, you know, I mean, you, you be you and, uh, people feel uncomfortable. That's on them. Yeah. And that is, you know, we've talked about that before and it's an interesting dynamic. Um, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's not my job to make people feel comfortable, although I do try to as much as I can, but I, I do, I do realize that there is, there's a tendency for people to, to not want to drink around you or to not want to talk about drinking around you. Although it's funny also because you'll you'll have the people that do know my story and just forget about it and will say and ask me, you know, hey, can I buy you a beer? Can I do this? And then they'll be, oh, no, sorry. I, you know, so you get that situation some, but none of that bothers me. Um, again, I, you know, I read a quote that, that talked about 
you know, my triggers are my responsibility. And if it makes me uncomfortable, it's really my responsibility to remove myself from the situation. It's not everybody else's responsibility to walk on eggshells around me. I would think that most people feel like that that are in my situation um, because you, you want to get back to a normal, as normal of life as you can. And, you know, in the, the places I'm in, the career I work in, I'm going to be around drinking and that's okay. Yeah. Um, I, I like to walk on eggshells around you so I can be a martyr. Like, sure wish I could have a glass of wine with dinner, but we got Colin here. Yeah, you yeah. certainly walk on eggshells when I come over and visit you and you have a beer in one hand and a scotch on the rocks in the other. How um, dare you? I'm just <laughs> trying to make you feel welcome. And you do, actually. I do. <laughs> and, and, you know, yes. Um, so um, so I'm glad to be back. Um, there is a lot going on in golf right now. We've got uh, the Arnold Palmer Invitational this week. Starts today. That's at Bay Hill. Um it's it's interesting timing just for all of this that's going on is um, for those of you who don't know, the news in golf lately has been about Phil, Phil Mickelson and Greg Norman in this super golf league that's been floating around out there for the last couple of years. Um, this is this is was supposed to be a league backed by Saudi money, um, Saudi Arabian money. Um, it was a little bit sketchy where that money was coming from or, or the people that that money was coming from. Um, basically, Phil Mickelson has been spending time with a writer named Alan Shipnick, who is writing a biography about Phil that's due out in May, actually. So some of these quotes that Shipnick had taken from Phil have come out recently. And, and kind of thrown Phil under the bus. Phil acted like those comments were off the record. I'm not sure how when somebody's writing a biography on you that any comments are off the record. Right. Um, I'm not sure in this day and age any comments are ever off the record. It, but it's certainly not off the record unless you agree with the person you're talking to that they're off the record. You can't just assume that one thing you said is on the record and another thing's off the record. So basically what's going on is um, Phil has, was, and I, I think people thought this was the case, is this Super Golf League was being batted around and talked about. Um, Phil was using this Super Golf League as leverage against the tour to to make the tour give the players more money or, or treat the players better, however he felt that the players were being treated. He said this specifically to Alan Shipnick last November, and this finally came out. Now, it's it's I, I don't think it's a an I, I think it's okay for a player to use something like that as leverage against the tour. However, it's not okay to say that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you you can't uh, you can't come out and admit that. Now, Phil says he said that off the record. Um, Phil issued an apology throughout all this. I don't know if you read that apology, Corey, but it wasn't much of an apology because when your apology letter in the fir first or second sentence, it automatically starts saying that this was taken out of context. So, yeah, um, you know, the apology was 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 not much of an apology. Then you have Greg Norman, the history behind this. I don't want to bore too bore the listeners too much with this, but um, so Greg Norman years ago had this idea to start a, 
uh, he didn't call it a super golf league at the time. He called it a world golf league or whatever. And as he started to roll with this, the PGA tour kind of raced out in front of him and started these four world golf championships where it was, you know, smaller fields, higher ranked world players, bigger money. Um, And Greg Norman really got, he, he really got pissed and has had a grudge against the PGA tour ever since basically thought that they stole his idea, which I, you know, I don't think they stole his idea. They did try to keep him from doing so the, the common theme I see between Mickelson's idea and Greg Norman's idea is it's not really taking care of the PGA tour on the whole. And it's certainly not at looking after the small guy, you know, these right. guys idea, and I, I'm going to simplify this here, but these guys ideas take the best 20 players in the world and have their own tour and get paid, you know, whatever, 50, a hundred million dollars up front to play 15 events um, a year. And that's great for them, but that sure excludes a lot of other players. Um, And I'm not saying that final number was going to be 20 or whatever it was going to be. So Greg Norman, after all this, writes a letter to Jay Monahan on the PGA Tour for this time. Just currently, he wrote a letter not too long ago. And I don't know if you read any of that letter, but it was absurd. It was like a letter that Dr. Evil from Austin Powers wrote. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the yeah. first sentence of the letter said, surely you jest <laughs> and basically went on to say that and basically threatened to sue the tour. And now the players on tour are independent contractors. So, right. you know, I, I don't know. Greg Norman brought up the fact that the tour basically said that if you jump to the Super Golf League, that you would be banned, lifetime banned from tour from the PGA Tour. I don't know legally whether the tour has the right to do that or not, but if these players are independent contractors, I I would think they do have the right to do that. They did not do that. They only threatened to do that. So um, I I, I don't know. It's hard to tell right now in this how many other players were seriously involved because they they jumped ship pretty quick if they were. Um, the players, this all came to a culmination kind of at Riviera two weeks ago, which is the, uh, PJ tours, LA event. Right. Um, and the, um, that's when those quotes came out by Mickelson. Basically it, it made that super golf league dead in the water. Um, and all of the players at that point, Roy McElroy, Dustin Johnson, John Rahm, they all publicly came out and said they supported the tour and we're not going to have any part of this other thing. Now, supposedly behind closed doors, there were several players, top players involved in this, and it even hired their own lawyers to start writing a contract with the Super Golf League. So I don't know who those players were and if they abandoned Phil at the last minute or if they were just tagged along with Phil because Phil is who Phil is. Phil is a big influence in the game of golf and he has been a good influence in the game of golf, mostly until this recent thing. Well, Phil's a complex character because, uh, he's, he seems, he appears to be this wholesome sort of every man, you know? Um, and I suppose he is in some sense, but then he was also involved in that, trial where there was a $50,000 check that was written to a bookie. Um, you know, and he ended up having to testify in that trial and ended up putting away sort of testifying against someone that was a former business partner. So, 
he's had an interesting relationship with money and business dealings. Um, and the other thing, it's it's very odd the symbiotic relationships between an organization like the PGA Tour and the players because the PGA Tour was built organically um, over a period of years and and has some of the most traditional golf properties. I'll say, you know, uh, it, you can't just go to Saudi Arabia and replace the Masters or playing the U.S. Open on Pebble Beach, right? The history of the USGA being involved with the PGA Tour and all of those things. And generally speaking, there's one platform. If you're a professional wrestler, it's the WWE. If you play football, it's the NFL. There's typically one uh, showcase in the world for the world's best at whatever. And the PGA Tour happens historically to be the one for golf. And most of those guys made their name, made their money on the PGA tour. And then it, then they become stars. And then it's a symbiotic relationship where now Phil Mickelson helps the tour as much as the tour helps Phil Mickelson, but they gave him the platform to make the money. And that's the argument that people say, Greg Norman, Phil Mickelson, you know, Greg Norman, we know you because you lost all those majors and you played on the PGA tour. You came from Australia. That's why you're an international superstar. And so to abandon the tradition of the PGA Tour just for money for the top 20 players, you know, I mean, the idea is it's great. We all should have the pursuit of, you know, what you're worth. But it's a don't expect people to on the PGA Tour to just roll over and say, okay, sure. Take all our best players. Right. Yeah. The, the, I, it's not, it's not a well thought through plan in my opinion. Um, it, it, but it, but it certainly makes more sense for a player who's Phil's age. It doesn't make sense yeah. to call him out more does it? I mean, Phil's no. probably not going to win any more majors at this point. So he, his career is basically done. I, I, I shouldn't say that. I mean, he's got champion stuff to play in and he can still certainly win a PGA tour event, but you know, what, what was probably going to happen with this is the, the majors, you know, somebody said the other day, if the masters would just come out and say, you're, if you play in the super golf league, we're not going to invite you to the masters. It would end it. Right. And, and that's the kind of possibility that was going to happen. But it was funny as I was watching the lead up to um, the Arnold Palmer invitation in Bay, Bay Hill this week. And they're talking about Arnold Palmer because Arnold Palmer was, was basically the original tiger woods and, and it, Tiger, for what Tiger Woods did for the game, Arnold Palmer did it first and gave Tiger the ability to 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 take it to the next level. Right. So one of the things I was watching was Payne Stewart won the um, Bay Hill Invitational in 1987. Okay, he won $108,000. He donated <laughs> his whole check to charity, to Children's wow. Hospital. $108,000. The winner of this year is going to win like two, uh, three million. I mean, it's not even the same ball game. And so th- these guys, it's not like they're not being rewarded and taken care of and it hasn't progressed. Arnold did a lot of things to change the tour for the benefit of the players, but he did his business behind closed doors with the tour. Right. He may have threatened them in a similar way back then. I don't know, but he certainly didn't do it publicly. Right, when Tiger came along. He didn't have to do any of that. The sponsors just came running, and the money just poured in. 
Right. Um, so there wasn't a whole lot of back backroom shuffling, I don't think, with Tiger. But he certainly didn't do anything publicly to try to, you know, uh, Phil Mickelson used the word obnoxious greed when talking about the PGA Tour staff and dictatorship. Pretty strong words for the tour that's made you, uh, I don't know if Phil Mickelson's a billionaire, but he's got to be close. Yeah, of course. Um. You know, the other thing was he admittedly said that the people talking about the Saudis and the people who were backing it, that they were scary MFers <laughs> and went on to um, to talk about, you know, one of the big things was that the guys who were, were putting up this money were were part of the group that was involved in um, the Washington Post columnist who was killed over there right um you know and they execute people for all kinds of different things and there's all kinds of record of of violation of human rights so it wasn't the greatest group in the world to be getting in bed with anyway if i was phil i'd be looking over my shoulder a little bit right now the saudis might be coming after me to take a kneecap or something well yeah listen i mean it's just not a great look when you've had close to a hundred million dollars of PGA tour career earnings minus, you know, or plus all of your endorsements and all the, you know, you've sold your name. Uh, so you've done all right. So the obnoxious greed part, I, you know, uh, sort of the pot calling the kettle black there. Um, and yeah, I mean, you can't exactly say like, Oh, it doesn't matter. You know, they execute gay people in Saudi Arabia cause I want more money. Right. You know, I mean, that's not the best message. Yeah, um, there wasn't there. Yeah. It just it seemingly there there wasn't a lot of solid. Uh, he, he just wasn't standing on very firm ground to be acting like such a um an ass about it. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. Um, and Norman, I don't know. You know, he's just he's mad from back then, I guess. And, and what was funny about that is all that. You mentioned it. We know Norman about blowing majors. And so all this basically came to fruition over the weekend at um, at uh, the L.A. Invitational, Genesis, Inv- Genesis Invitational. And so the memes started flying. Um, imagine that Norman falling apart on a Sunday again. <laughs> right. Which, which I thought was pretty clever. And but it was like the next day that must have pissed off Norman too because that's when he sent that letter that was released to the commissioner that was it was really comical. Um, everybody, you, you need to Google it and, and go read it. It's it's pretty funny. It's uh, it's kind it's threatening, but with like what basis is he threatening with? I have no idea. But anyway, right. so that's been uh, some interesting news going on. Um, I I think you know it, if you'd have if we'd have talked about this a week ago, I think I'd have been a little harder on Phil than I'm going to be about it today. You know, he lost all his sponsors with the exception of Callaway. He is on pause with Callaway right now, but he lost Workday. You know, they said they were mutual um, separations, but they, they weren't mutual. I mean, they just get, it's like being fired and they give you the option to resign type thing. Um, yeah, like uh, Tiger was, Woods and his wife had a mutual separation. Correct. Yeah. And, you know. and she got half his money in the mutual right. separation. So, yeah. So, you know, 
um, it'll be interesting. I think Phil will land back on his feet, depending on how he handles this going forward. It, it was also funny. So the tour does a bonus money for what they call PIP, and it has to do with social media and how mu- how much these guys move the needle on social media. And they, they do this, I think, per year. And the winner this year got $8 million. Second place got $6 million. Phil Mickelson had sent a tweet out a couple months ago or a month ago thanking everybody for him winning the PIP and that he had to play in a new event to qualify so he'd see you at Kapalua and then something about how he's going to win it next year. Well, Tiger ended up winning it. And so Tiger tweeted back to Phil's tweet yesterday and said, "Uh, whoops, with (laughs) with the emoji with his arms out. Because Tiger yeah. actually won the eight million, Phil finished second with six million. Now, for Tiger to win that, all he had to do was, if you remember, a couple of months ago, the 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 videos of Tiger hitting balls on the back of the range at whatever event. I think it was the event he hosted, but wasn't playing in. Yeah, and it was the first time anybody had seen him hitting balls since the accident. So that pretty much did it for him. And they're already talking about this whoops remark ought to make him win it for the next five years. so that was pretty interesting um so we we got a good little stretch of golf coming up here like i said we've got the arnold palmer invitational this week at bay hill we've got um the players championship next week which is the second year of the new time slot because they've moved the pga and all that stuff right the pga is now in between the masters and the u.s open which is where the players championship used to be I don't normally like when they change stuff like this, but I, I like this new schedule change. We get right into the midst of stuff quick. You didn't have the best players in the world starting to play these next two weeks. Um, and then before you know it, the Masters is going to be here in April. So, Yeah, this is when golf, you know, it's it's weird now because the golf, golf season doesn't really stop. You know, there used to be sort of the Tour Championship and then there was a break. And then the first event in January, the West Coast Swing, the West coast version and uh so now it feels like the season the important part of the season is starting and uh you're right seeing better players better tournaments real quick going back to phil and tiger it's very interesting that when those guys were really battling in the prime of their careers tiger was this sort of cyborg uh you know buttoned up couldn't really know him and phil was kind of the you know, smiling, smiling all the time and sort of the people's champion. He was sort of the um, Arnold Palmer to Tigers, Jack Nicholas, And uh, that has totally reversed between Tigers, um, you know, comeback win where he won the tour championship and then the masters and then this wreck and then playing with his son, like, Tiger is beloved like never before. And now Phil is the one that everyone just looks at as like this greedy sort of jackass. It's very interesting. Um, Those two have totally switched in the public perception. Well, it's funny because having spoken to the tour players that I have talked to over the years, it has always been that way with the players. The players have always really favored Tiger over Phil. Phil comes across, he's kind of got that Lee Trevino reputation as Everybody loves him in the public and he's great in front of the camera, but he's, he's, but in the locker room, he's eh, the players don't, I'm not saying they don't like him, but the players I've talked to always said tiger 
was when Tiger's in the locker room, he's more of a player's player. Right. That feels more of a glad hand or smiler and plays it up for the camera where Tiger doesn't do that, but he is actually friendlier with the players. Um, so it's interesting that, and, and Phil, Phil just, I, I think, um, you know, th- and that's part of social media these days, man. Social media has ended up, ended up stinging him. I mean, it's his own fault. He yeah. said, he said, and, and did some dumb stuff. Um, but, um, I, I think he will recover from this. He's done too much for the game. As long as he, as long as he backs off of it, which he has at this point, you know, I, I players have the right to fight for what they deserve. I, I completely agree with that. I mean, right now baseball's going through this. Baseball's about to go on strike before the season even starts. It looks like it happens in other sports. It doesn't happen in golf as much because they don't have a players' union really, and they are independent contractors. And it's a gentleman's game. All that old school cliche stuff. Um, but the, the the movements that I've seen from Norman and Mickelson and golf are certainly not protecting all the players as a whole. It, no. It's seemingly trying to be a windfall for the top 20 players in the world, which let's say, let's say the Saudis locked in the top 20 players in the world. Well, the top 20 players in the world change all the time. The twentieth guy by the end of the end of the year could be one hundred and twentieth. So yeah, that's I, I don't right. understand exactly how that work how that would work anyway. And then what what you know I I'm I'm guessing these tournaments would have purses, but if you pay me a hundred million to play in fifteen events, I mean, I, what what are you going to do? Are you going to be doing push ups on your knuckles? Or are you going to be sitting in your hotel room eating bonbons? Right. You're already getting yeah, the money. Well, I, I, I don't know. I'm I'm being I'm being a little bit funny there and, and a little bit extreme, but what you know, I don't know. It doesn't it doesn't seem like a good formula, a long lasting business plan that works. Well, it's 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 a little complex business wise because um, people deserve to make as much as someone will pay them. You know, there is no. We often say with athletes, oh, they don't deserve. You know, my business, people say this ridiculous thing all the time. Why do you pay the quarterback of the football team $100 million, but the orchestra members make whatever? And, and what I always say is because they sell 50,000 seats a week. Right. Um, that, that's why. Um, and so people get what they, you know, there's nothing wrong with trying to get your piece of the pie. But I think what happens often, I mean, I noticed this on a small scale personally, and I've seen it in my business. The human beings have an interesting capacity, whether things are bad or good, for thinking somehow you deserve either one. If things are going bad, you're like, well, yeah, you know, I should work on this or that. But suddenly, if things are going very well, you're like, well, of course. Why wouldn't they use me? (laughs) And so, you know, in my business, that can mean, you know, you're starting to work at the Metropolitan Opera. And now you're singing lead roles there and you're making the top fee. Well, why not? And I'm sure Phil Mickelson and... uh, Greg Norman and Tiger Woods, to some extent, they certainly know their worth in the world of golf. The amount of, um, you know, I'm sure all those TV deals were built on largely on those three's backs in some way. Um, But I don't think there gets to a point once you get so successful, you start to think you deserve it more than the tour deserves it. And so you're you're not like it seems like Arnold Palmer, no matter what his business dealings with the PGA Tour, was grateful to be a part of the PGA Tour and was sort of a representative of that. 
And I just don't think people like it when it, when greed on top of already tremendous success is not a great look. Right. Um, I, yeah, you deserve what you can get, but you've made $800 million in your golf career uh, largely because you're on the PGA Tour. Right. He just made a $6 million bonus this year for his um, social media presence. Right. So, yeah. you know, he's doing okay, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So I yeah, I agree with you on that. It's hard to it's hard to not come across as greedy and, and when whenever you're 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 he's he's biting the hand that's feeding him and making him that's giving him the opportunity to not only to, to make money through them, but to make money off the course because of them. Um that's right. So, yeah. You know, again, I, I think barring the um situation that he just goes full bore with this going forward, which I don't think he's going to do. He's been, he, he has not made a comment in a couple of weeks. I don't think after that apology. So, um, I think he's going to back off of this and I, I think he'll be fine. But most, most of the players have watched some of the players interviews yesterday and they, they're, they're, you know, I watched Rory, especially Rory McElroy has been very outspoken on this as far as, as not wanting to be part of it. And, um, and not really thinking anything's broken on the PGA tour. And, you know, he, he was, Canada again yesterday and basically said that that you know we hope Phil would 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 rebound from this and thought that he would um because he's just done too much for the game you don't want to see this you don't want to see this tarnish his legacy even though it was well at some point he'll hire a PR person and he'll do some big interview with Jim Nance or someone and uh you know he'll explain himself and in six months, everything will be fine. And maybe this was all a ploy to sell 100 million books in May. Well, I'm going to buy it now. <laughs> I, know. I know everybody's going to that has anything to do with golf, right? Yeah, I can't wait. I was like, May, that's too long. Yeah, um, so Bay Hill, interestingly, this week, Bay Hill is is Arnold Palmer's kind of baby he um he got involved with bay hill in the 70s and i think he started leasing the property eventually got a group together and bought it and he did the redesign of the golf course um the golf course has been pretty much the same golf course though it uh it very difficult golf course the the rough's high this week course is in good shape um the golf course this is where bryson dechambeau uh last year hit that 370 yard drive on that par five all carry over water it's a 600 right. and something yard par five. But if you go straight from T to green, it's 380 yards. No right. one's ever tried it before. He did hit a little right of the green on purpose. Um, Bryson's not playing this week. He's a defending champion, but he's still injured. He was going to play and decided not to. Um, so it, it should be an interesting tournament. It's always a fun tournament to watch. I was able to play second stage of, of U.S. Open qualifier in the late 90s. Um, before the ball technology, golf course, very long, very difficult. Um, and it's a fun tournament to watch. I think Tigers won it seven or eight times, which is amazing. So, yeah, that is amazing. Um, so, Corey, so we'll just, let's talk about your road trip just a little bit here. Yeah, I think next next episode I'll really get into the details of it. But uh, it, was, it was great in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I don't typically uh, travel like that anymore. And I don't typically do such a high level, uh, show, um, meaning from a production standpoint It's very well thought out. 
very um, interestingly updated and sort of in a timely manner. It was also interesting, you know, we'll get more into this. I'm not going to get into all this today, but it was interesting being the, it was a Black Lives Matter themed um, production of Fidelio. So the, the guy that's in prison is a Black Lives Matter activist. And I play sort of a white supremacist in the modern sense. Um, and I was the, it, there's five cast members and I was the only white cast member, um, which was unique. And then the, this opera has a famous prisoners chorus. And in this production, they actually went to six different prisons and filmed real prisoners singing this German music about freedom. And, uh, it was, it's fascinating. They included in the lobby of each show letters from these prisoners, um, talking about what the experience meant to them. Um, and you know, it's easy. Uh, we live in the South where everyone is, uh, you know, everything is sort of, um, cut and dry. There's very little gray area. Criminals go to jail. Uh, we go to church. Everything's in a neat little box. And, you know, you make a life in the arts. Number one, it's not a very political place to be because you're around, uh, a variety of people from all over the world, different cultures. Um, and I always find it unique to experience, uh, the world through someone else's experience, someone else's eyes. And certainly it'd be hard to do a production like this, be the only white person uh, and watch people work on a piece that deals with heavy racial issues and not have something in you be changed or think differently about it. Uh, so, um, were yeah, you much un- more. Were you uncomfortable at all? Wasn't uncomfortable. Doing that role? There... No, no, I wasn't uncomfortable doing the role. I was uncomfortable a couple times. Um, having conversations about, you know, you will typically talk about uh, the motivation of a character or what this means within context of the piece. And what I realized is white people talk about racism and black people presumably talk about racism, but we don't often speak to each other about it. You know, you would never sit down in a restaurant or sit at a bar next to a black person and start talking about the finer points of racism. Right. Um, At least not in my experience. Right. And so trying to have that conversation sort of in context of the show. And one thing that was interesting to me is I I begin the show with a one sided phone call. So, you know, there's a phone ring cue. I pick up a cell phone and I answer it. And I'm presumably talking to a government official who we're in business together, sort of, you know, this is a for profit prison. And so we're doing some shady business dealings. And uh, and I told the director, I said, you know, this is fairly generic, the writing about sort of what a racist person would talk like. But unfortunately, I have, you know, real life experience hearing people speak in a pretty vile way, racially speaking, but in a very casual, offhanded manner, you know. Um, and and I looked up, I found a phone call online between Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon. And it was, uh, you know, clearly not meant to be released. And Ronald Reagan says to Nixon, he was laughing, you know, I was just at the UN and all the delegations from all the representatives from Africa, they're wearing shoes like monkeys and they both laugh. And, and I said, you know, the unfortunate sad part about a character like this is it's almost so casual and so joking and so cruel that, it's, that that's the cruelty of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so yeah, yes. there was some, you know, trying to be as respectful as possible and also try to sort of 
understand that character. And I mean, you, you know, it. I know it, there are still people in the South that are, um, that way. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. And I don't think it's limited to the South. I mean, no, it certainly isn't. I, I think that, uh, you know, we, we, um, I, I, I've seen some of that in our experiences in Indiana in the Midwest. So yeah, I, I think, I think, it, you, it's, I yeah. think you see it everywhere and you certainly, I think you see it, like you said, more in that joking vein where people are, are kind of, I think some people actually are joking and some people are pretending to be joking and, and, and it kind of excuses or they're, they're trying to excuse themselves by passing along as a joke, it right. does, it, yeah. you know, and that doesn't fly in this day and age at all anymore. No, it doesn't. And, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's still, I mean, even with the, uh, the black lives matter movement really sort of um, ex- exploded after the George Floyd uh, tape was released and uh, and we're still dealing with that we're still you know we watched a guy with his knee on someone's throat for five minutes or more eight minutes and then people still don't don't believe it <laughs> people are right. still debating whether that was uh, you know whether he should have or shouldn't have done that so it's it's fascinating well, you know I think I told you I went to a cultural sensitivity training class for the city of Mobile last week. And one of the things yeah. they were talking about were different sayings that you can't say anymore, like blind leading the blind and stuff like that, which I've never really thought of that one. The easy ones are slave driver or, or crack the whip, that those kind of sayings. But it was it, with the blind leading the blind one, I thought, uh, um, well, I'm in big trouble because when I putt poorly, I always tell people I putted like Stevie Wonder. And so... <laughs> <laughs> Not only is Stevie Wonder blind, he's black and old. So I'm defending, I'm offending three three classes of people with that one statement that I really wasn't intending to. I was just saying that I putted like a blind person, basically. I'm not people. laughing at the joke. I'm laughing that that would be the, what comes up in cultural sensitivity training. Yeah, that's what I learned in cultural <laughs> sensitivity training, that I'm offending yeah. three classes of people when I talk about putting like Stevie Wonder. So I'm going to work on that. Yeah, congratulations. For sure. All right, so that brings us to the end of our episode. Sorry, it was a quick episode today. Um, you know, it's uh, go in and Google the uh, stuff with Phil Mickelson and Greg Norman if you're not aware of it. If you're a golf fan, you're probably very aware of it at this point. Um, you know, it's just I, I think when 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 people come across. Um, greedy when they're already making a bunch of money. It's not to say that there's not stuff that the tour can improve on with the players. I don't think anybody, I, I don't think anybody likes to see these guys are making so much money. And then on, on top of that, it just seems like a money grab. This, this particular one did. Um, and it left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. It's not to say these guys can't make more money. And if, and if PGA tours practices are unfair, they certainn'tly need to be looked into. I'm not sure levering, Leveraging yourself or the top players in the world, basically ignoring the 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 let's just call them the medium players in the world, not taking care of them, not looking after them. Uh, it just something just didn't sit well with that whole thing, and I don't think it was handled properly. I think Phil, in the short term, has gotten what he deserved. 
Um, you know, again, I hope this doesn't tarnish his, his whole career and I don't think it will, but, um, you know, and you just, you, you gotta be careful with what you do. Greg Norman, look, I was a huge Greg Norman fan growing up. I had a, um, life-size cardboard cutout from Spalding when he was represented by Spalding. We have on the golf shop. My pro was going to throw it away when I worked at Oak Mountain State Park in high school and I took that sucker home and had it in the garage forever. And so I was a huge Greg Norman fan, loved it. I hated that he didn't win at Augusta, but he has over the past 20 years uh, to me, not been a good ambassador for the game of golf. And, um, and I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a huge fan anymore. I'm sure he's not worried about that, but it's a shame when, um, when, when that happens to people, but you know, it's, he's, it's not his job to impress me or make me his fan. So, um, you know, me and Corey were talking about David Faraday. Um, we, we, we'd love to try to get word to David Faraday, get him on this show. This show should be right up his alley. I saw an interview with David Faraday the other day where he said that, um, his two loves growing up were golf and opera. So <laughs> be it that this show's about golf and my brother's a professional opera singer. But for those of you who don't know, David Faraday is also a recovering alcoholic slash addict. He, he was addicted to pain pills as well. So, um, it would be interesting to get him to, to listen to the show and tell us what he thought. And certainly to be a guest would be great. So, um, we're happy to be back season two, episode one, um, if you haven't listened to the show before, listen to season season one, episode one and two, especially kind of talk about my past. We'll get into that more in future episodes. Um, we're going to be releasing episodes every Thursday for the next however many weeks. Um, we've got uh, the Players Championship next week, the Masters coming up in April. Um, so lots to talk about. We'll have some uh, guests coming up, which we'll start to announce next week. And um, looking forward to a good season two and a good 2022. So thank you for all the listeners. Again, please email the show golfdrinkinglife at gmail.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Colin McKern. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in and we will see you next week. Thank you. You just got to keep living, man. L-I-V-I-N. Mm-hmm.